Welcome to the Guidelines Podcast. My name is Jonathan Copeland, and today's episode is about design standard, ISO 9241, the ergonomics of human system interaction, part 210, human-centered design for interactive systems. I'd like to start off today's episode by reading a segment from a book that I'm reading at the moment called The Creative Habit by Twyla Tharp. I think it will frame what we're going to be going through today quite well. When a journalist gets a story assignment, he doesn't immediately sit down and knock out a finished piece. He has a routine, which is common to all good journalists. First, he reads the background material that he can get his hands on. Then he talks to people to verify old information, unearth new information, and pull out lively quotes. He jots all of this down in his notes. Filling up the notebook can take hours or months, depending on the journalist's deadline but only when his research and reporting are done and his notebook is full does he write the story. If his reporting is good, the writing will reflect that. It will come out clearly and quickly. If the reporting is shoddy, the writing will be too. It will be torture to get the words out. When I read this segment, I got to thinking about what is the UX equivalent of good reporting? How can we do our research well? And one of the things that I've been learning over the course of 2019 and 2020 has been what good UX looks like. I've learned that UX is a process and not a deliverable. And especially that UX is not a new discipline. That in one way or another, UX has been around for many, many, many years. And one of the the clearest representations of that is when I discovered ISO 9241. This is an international standard for good user-centered design that was put together in 1999. I first learned about ISO 9241 whilst doing David Travis's UX Udemy course. The graduates and I at Sand Dollar Design have been working through this course over the last uh, couple of months since the beginning of the year, working through the practical, discussing the theoretical. And David Travis mentioned the principles of user experience design based on ISO 941's definition. And it really stood out to me at the time. So I went and made sure that I could get hold of the document and read it. And it's so exciting to see that UX has standards that have been put in place a long time ago. And that if we follow those standards, we can move closer towards less of a hype-based design approach and more of a standards systematic approach to design. Before I get into explaining ISO 9241, and before that, defining other approaches to design other than human-centered design, I'd like to explain firstly what ISO is, and then how ISO 9241 fits into everything. So ISO is is an international standards organization. On their website, they say they have standards from everything from soap to spaceships. Now, you can go onto their website, iso.org, and you can read about standards and best practice on how to design anything and everything. Today we're going to be looking at ISO 9041. The first version of this document was put together in 1999 and has subsequently been revised in 2010. And then the last version was revised last year in 2019. The thing that I find exciting about ISO 9041 is that in an industry like UX, which is growing and expanding, it seems like there's all these little bits of def- these, all these separate definitions about what good uh, good UX is. It can seem that what we're doing is entirely new, never been done before. 
However, it excites me to know that UX is not actually a new discipline. And yes, it's still a maturing discipline, but there have been people who've gone before us. We can stand on the shoulders and giants and learn from the work of those who've gone before us. So today's episode, we're going to be going through that. And I'd love to share with you what I've learned about what good standard-driven user experience design looks like. Before we dig into ISO 9241 and user-centered design, I'd like to go through something that's been on my mind recently, which is what are other approaches to design? So if user-centered design is this uh, established and reliable way of creating designs that work, what are the other approaches and why do people still use them? So I turn to none other than Jared Spool to see what his thoughts are on the topic. And in a blog post that he wrote back in 2015, uh, he mentioned that the different types of approaches in addition to user-centered design are unintentional design, self-design, genius design, and activity-focused design. So firstly, unintended design. Every single product that's been made has been designed. However, it's either been designed intentionally or unintentionally. What Jared Spool is talking about here is that a product can be unintentionally designed if when building it, you don't think about how it's going to be used in the end. You don't think about the end user and what they need from it. And that's unfortunately an approach that many people adopt. So you'll have something that you need to make and you'll just make it rather than thinking about how it's going to be used. Self-design is an approach where you will build as a designer, you will design what you think the user needs, entirely based on assumptions. Without any user research, you will go about designing something based on your needs and based on what you would like and designing for that. Thirdly, there's genius design. So genius design is when a designer maybe with a long-standing experience within design will design something based off of their experience rather than what the user would need. Now genius design can be useful when you've got experience in, say for example, building shopping carts for e-commerce sites. If you built five e-commerce sites, very likely that you'd be able to build a good e-commerce site again. However, Experience in one design area doesn't translate always to another design area. So genius design can be dangerous. Next we have activity-focused design. So activity-focused design is where you, as a designer or as a design team, make assumptions around what users want. So you decide that you're going to make a, maybe a photo sharing application and you decide all the features that people are going to need and then you test those specific features. You maybe will come with a well-designed product that does those features well. But maybe users don't want those exact features. This is where user-centered design comes in. It's an approach that is all-encompassing. And the focus is deciding your assumptions aside, empty yourself, and based on research, learn what the actual needs of the users are, and then design for that. Along with unintended design, self-design, genius design, and activity-focused design, there just seems to be a general lack of awareness about what good user-centered design looks like. Oftentimes what you'll see is people saying that they are doing UX. Basically what they're doing is dressing up business requirements with micro UX. Maybe they've got certain elements of the design one done really well. However, the design, the actual foundation of the design is broken. They don't know what they don't know. They're simply doing graphic design on top of business requirements. Okay. So now that we've been through alternative approaches to design and we've established where user-centered design sits in terms of those design approaches, let's look at ISO 9241. And there's a section within the document which is titled Principles of Human-Centered Design. 
And there are six principles that the document works through. And I'd like to work through each of those and discuss each one. Okay, so the first principle of human-centered design according to ISO is that the design needs to be based upon an explicit understanding of users, tasks, and environments. Constructing systems based on inappropriate or incomplete understanding of user needs is one of the major sources of system failure. The extent to which products are usable and accessible depends on how well the designer understands the context of use. And this is the users, their goals, the tasks they're performing and the environments they're performing it in. Basically what this means is before you can start building something, you need to know what you're building and why you're building it. A large part of how you do this is by developing a proper requirement analysis process. What this looks like is spending time with your stakeholders in meetings, making sure that you understand what they need. This can be through looking at pain points, what the ideal future state would be, what are the business requirements. You're not building for the business requirements, but you need to understand those business requirements. The thing that also comes into that is, is budget and timelines. If you have six months to do something, you can follow a robust user-centered process. And if you have a massive budget to go with it. However, very often you'll have about a month to work on something. And you need to find out what parts of the user-centered process would fit into your budget and would fit into your timeline. So it's very important that you understand those things upfront. In this requirement analysis stage, you would have these meetings with stakeholders, as well as understand the technical requirements and limitations of the project. You need to be asking what hardware people are going to be using the software on, what software they're going to be using, what kind of internet connection they have. These are limitations that can inform your design, so you need to really understand those. And then there's your user requirement. This can be achieved through interviewing and spending time talking with your users or observing them within the environment. So the design needs to be based on explicit understanding of users through spending time with them, interviewing them and observing them, tasks through spending time with your stakeholders, understanding the business requirements, and then the environment. And that could be how are people using the product, what product, what uh, uh, what device, what hardware, what software they're going to be using your product on? These are all very important questions. Point two, users are involved throughout the design and development process. User involvement should be active, whether by participating in the design, acting as a source of relevant data, or evaluating solutions. The effectiveness of user involvement increases as the interaction between the developers and users increases. The organization procuring the system has the opportunity to have a direct influence on the design as it emerges, and those who are actually going to be working on it with the future system can take part in evaluating proposed solutions. Such involvement and participation can also increase user acceptance and commitment. When following a user-centered process, you should be basing your designs on things that you learn from your users. You're not designing based on assumptions. You're not buying, designing based on your needs. You're designing based on data that you learn from your users through interviews and observations. Once you have this information and you've come up with these designs, you then need to validate these designs because maybe during the process of interviewing and spending time with your users, your bias it has, has affected the design. And that's where the next stage, testing, comes. So you need to take the, the designs that you've put together based on things that you've learned from your users. You need to take these designs and then take them back to those users and test it to make sure that you've understood it. There's the children's game, it's called Broken Telephone, where people will sit in a circle and you'll try and pass a message around through the group 
and you'll see how much that message changes over the course of even a small circle. And it's the same with design. When taking feedback from your users, taking it from the field to your design software, when you get back home, there can be things that are lost in translation. It's important that once you've done a design that you take it back to those users and test it. And this cycle, and this is part of the cycle of, of the user-centered process. Base your design on things you've learned from your users, and then you test. And then based on the input you get from users, you update your design. And you go back and forth, back and forth. And this is limited based on your budget and your timelines. If you have a long time to do this, you can go through the cycle of spending time with users, getting their feedback, and testing it and then going back and forth through that you can do that over a long period of time if you have the budget and timelines for it however you need to factor the timelines that you have the budget that you have how many iterations and testing that you can do but this is an incredibly important step and i think it's a the the bare bones of a user-centered process is you design it and you test it so that's point two users are involved throughout the design and development process Point three says that the design is driven and refined by user-centered valuation. Evaluating designs with users and improving them based on their feedback provides an effective means of minimizing the risk of a system not meeting user or organizational needs. This evaluation time with users allows early design solutions to be tested against real-world scenarios. So what you're doing is you're, you're not coming up with, with software that's missing the mark in terms of hitting the scope, but you're actually making something and then testing it based on what the users actually need. And this is progressively refined as the project proceeds. User-centered evaluation should also take place as part of the final acceptance of the product to confirm that requirements have been met. Basically, it's the same thing where you're saying that any design that you're coming up with needs to be based on user insights. And then once you've done that design, you take it back to the users and test it. And you go through the cycle of making sure that your, that your work is conforming to what you've learned from your users. Feedback from users is a critical source of information in human-centered design. And this should be at every stage um, of the project process. So that's point three. The design is driven and refined by user-centered evaluation. Point four, the process is iterative. It's important to note that the most appropriate design for any interactive system or application cannot be achieved without iteration. It's very, very unlikely that you'll be able to create the, the perfect product on your first iteration and after your first round of user testing. Iteration should be used at each stage of the product, eliminate uncertainty during the development of your application or your website. Iteration implies that descriptions Specifications and prototypes are revised and refined when new information is obtained in order to minimize the risk of the system under development failing to meet user requirements. So every step along the way, you're learning new things, but you're making sure that you're applying them and you're constantly evolving the product as you're working. Many of the needs and expectations of users and other stakeholders that will impact on the design of your app or your website only emerge over the course of development thing is oftentimes people don't know what they want and when you're working with a client they have an idea for a product they have an inkling of an understanding but as you start going through this process of involving them in the, in the design and development now once you start interviewing users and revealing what their needs are they will then start to understand and provide you with deeper insight into the way this product should work 
So in the course of development, as the designers refine their understanding of the users and their tasks, and as users are able to better understand, be able to express their needs in response to potential solutions. And this is a key point as well. Once you actually start making these physical systems that you can put in front of users, whether it's a simple paper prototype or showing them screens from your Figma or Sketch file, or even an interactive prototype that they can work through, they can start to see as users what works for them and what their actual needs are. And that's when you can start to iterate further and further and further. User-centered design is not about just one round of user testing, but rather this iterative process of going through a cycle of getting feedback from users, taking that, designing something, then going back to the users and testing it. And you go through this process again and again and again as much as your budget and your timeline allows. This is not just about one round of user testing. Now there are two different types of user testing I'd like to talk through. Formative user testing and summative user testing. Formative user testing is basically helping you see what the design should look like. This is figuring out the skeleton and making sure that you're heading in the right direction. It also allows you to explore ideas and come up with concepts. This is so critical at the beginning stage of the product. You want to be able to keep a loose mind and be able to explore freely around where design could possibly go. Problem with settling on, a, on an idea too early and choosing that as a direction, whether it's an aesthetic design of a product or even the positioning of a product, is that it makes it far more difficult at a later stage in the product to reverse that and start afresh. So this formative user testing, these first um, stages of the product where you're exploring ideas and you're uh, taking feedback from users iterating on ideas and rapidly moving back and forth uh, is incredibly important. Once you're done with your formative user testing, you'll go about iterating on your decided upon design and you'll do this up until the end of the project. And that's where summative testing comes in. So summative testing is all about making sure well, actually reflecting back on the testing to see whether you've actually achieved the goal that you set out to achieve in the first place. This is your, your final test to see what's wrong with the product. So you've, you've gone through this process of working with users, understanding their needs, building for those needs, and you've built this product, but there's no perfect product. And you need to, at the end of it, become aware of what problems exist in the product that you made. And this is where summative testing comes in. Going through the work that you've done and evaluating it after the fact. And this can inform future updates or releases as well as future products. So that's point four, the process is iterative. Point five, the design addresses the whole user experience. There's a common misconception that usability refers solely and completely to making products easier to use. However, that's just not the case. User experience design is about the whole interaction that someone might have with your product or service. It's about designing the user's experience and considering organizational impact, user documentation, online help, support, maintenance, training, future iterations of your product, long-term use, product packaging. It's not just the way the app that people are interacting with, although that's such an important part of it. It's everything else surrounding that product and how that all comes together into a pleasing user experience. User experience is a consequence of the presentation, functionality, system performance, interactive behavior, and assistive capabilities of an interactive system in both the hardware and the software. And whenever you make a product, the user's strengths, limitations, preferences, and expectations should be taken into account when specifying which activities are carried out by the users 
and which functions are carried out by the technology. So at every point along the way, you're thinking, what is the technology doing? And what are people doing? And how are the two of them interacting with each other, digitally and physically? This is one of the, the key distinctions between a user-centered process versus the other approaches that we looked at earlier, in that a user-centered process addresses the whole user experience. This is not just the way that people are going to be using your app or website, but what are the non-digital ways that people are going to be interacting with your product, like Uber Eats? This would be how people go about hearing about Uber Eats, to, to how they go about installing the app and using it, to the process of collecting their food from the first driver. So that's point five. The design addresses the whole user experience. And finally, point six. The design team includes multidisciplinary skills and perspectives. One of the key principles of a user-centered design approach is that the design is not just up to the designer. Everybody within the team influences the design, and the team consists of stakeholders, user researchers, business analysts, developers, everyone who's going to be building a product, working together to gain a deeper understanding and pool their resources together to create a product that serves the user's needs. It's no longer about the lone genius, someone coming in and creating an amazing design out of nowhere, but actually it's put together by a whole team of people pulling together. Human-centered design teams don't have to be large teams. They don't have to be a, a whole lot of people working together, but the team should be sufficiently diverse to collaborate over design and implementation trade-off decisions at appropriate times. It's the classic thing of engineers and architects working together. Architects want to do this incredibly beautiful design and engineers want to do something that stands the test of time. And the two need to do this dance together to be able to create something that is long-lasting and beautiful and that people want to interact with. And it's the same with the user-centered designer process. The perspective of business analysts, stakeholders, designers, developers, users, all of these come together to create products that stand the test of time and are long-lasting. The following skill areas and viewpoints could be needed in the design and development team. Firstly, human-computer interaction and user researchers. The role of this team member is taking the research and packaging it in a way that the rest of the team can understand. This could be through personas or task flow analysis. Next up, users and stakeholder groups. This is pretty self-explanatory, but basically the people who are gonna be using the product need to be involved in the process, and the people who are invested in the product being created also need to be involved in the process. Domain experts are valuable when following a user-centered process. So for example, you're working with an agricultural app, having the resource of farmers you can consult uh, throughout the design process will improve your design overall. All products exist to be sold and provide business value. That's why marketing, branding, and sales team members are incredibly valuable. They'll show you how to position your product, especially when communicating with the larger stakeholder group. Use interface, visual, and product design team members take this messy collection of research and insights and give it form. This could be through tools like wireframing, UI design within a tool like Figma or Sketch, as well as interactive prototyping. Every product has writing and technical writers or UX writers, as they've been called now, are helpful in the sense because they show you how to communicate with your users in the most effective way through the language that you use in your product. Service management and corporate governance. 
These stakeholders will give you insights on how your product will interact with the information that it's going to be using, specifically within a larger corporate sense. What can and what can it not do? And what are the rules and regulations of the corporate that you're working with? Business analysts ensure that your product aligns with the business needs that this product is meant to achieve. They are a useful asset in assessing designs every step of the way and making sure that you are heading in the right direction. Development teams in hardware and software engineering are a helpful resource in the sense that they give you the constraints that you're allowed to be working in. They help you realize what is possible, especially within certain tech requirements. Not all of your uh, clients are going to be able to work with the latest tech stacks. Being able to have, as a part of the team, experts who are able to show you what you can and can't do in terms of the actual code is a valuable resource. And finally, human resources. Human resources ensures that whenever you're working on a product that relates to people, that you're considering especially all the legal constraints that go with working with that. And with that, we've been through the principles of human-centered design according to ISO 9241. To recap, the design is based upon an explicit understanding of users, tasks, and environments. Users are involved throughout the design and development process. The design is driven and refined by user-centered evaluation. The process is iterative. The design addresses the whole user experience. And the design team includes multidisciplinary skills and perspectives. And with that, we're done with the first deep dive of season two. I'd like to end off today's episode with a definition of something that's confused me since I started working within usability. And that is, what is the difference between human-centered design versus user-centered design? And the best definition that I can come up with is what I found right here in ISO 9241. And they say this, the term human-centered design is used rather than user-centered design in order to emphasize that this part of ISO 9241 also addresses impacts on a number of stakeholders, not just those typically considered as users. However, in practice, these terms are often used synonymously. So human-centered design looks at the effect of a product beyond just the person who's interacting with it, beyond just the user, to a larger audience, to its effect on a larger group of humans, whether that's stakeholders or even people who are interacting with the person who is using the product. What is the effect of our product on a larger human context as opposed to a one-to-one -one user context? So human-centered design is a bit of a broader perspective, whereas user-centered design is a one-to-one -one relationship between the product and the person using it. Human-centered design is about the product, the person using it, and the rest of the stakeholders surrounding that user. Thank you so much for listening. If you learned something from this episode and would like to hear more episodes in the future, please subscribe and consider leaving a comment so that other people can find this content. If you have any questions and would like me to answer them on an upcoming episode, go into the show notes where you can find a link to my Twitter page where you can ask me any questions that you have or even leave a voice note using the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to keep the user right where they should be first.